Detectives solve crimes. That's what they do. They take facts, they seek out evidence, and they try to put the pieces together to form a conclusion to say, this person committed this crime. They may take facts of DNA or eyewitness testimony or uh, video camera footage. Then they take things into account like motive, reason for the crime, opportunity for the crime. And they, they're gathering bits and pieces of evidence all to try and come to a conclusion that the evidence points that this person committed this crime. Well, John is not a detective, but he, for us, is dropping throughout 1 John pieces of evidence for each one of us to take and start gathering into our lives and saying, this is what a Christian looks like in heart, in word, in action. So that the, the person reading this letter might say, okay, here's something a Christian is, here's something a Christian is, here's something a Christian is, and give us assurance that if these things are present, I'm a child of God. He's trying to encourage us in being assured that we are indeed heirs of eternal life through Christ because these things are present in our lives. The evidence here is going to be three things throughout 1 John. We've seen Number one, there is a moral test. There is a holy God in heaven. Those born of him will be holy as well. Not perfect, not sinless. He makes that clear in chapter one, but God will begin changing his people to reflect his holiness. We saw a theological test or evidence. If we hold to who Jesus truly is, it's a proof that we are in Christ. But we also were introduced a few weeks back, and he's going to come back to it this week, to a third evidence, love for the body. If there is that in our lives, John says that's such a supernatural work, there's proof, evidence to gather that you are in Christ. So, with that in mind, we're, we're coming now again to this evidence or this test of love, beginning in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. If 
you take notes, if you want to just summarize this sermon in one sentence, it's this. Loving your spiritual family is a evidence of spiritual life. Loving your spiritual family is an evidence of spiritual life. And I'm using spiritual family because we'll notice throughout this text, love for brother and sister in the Lord. We're going to see this in three points today. Verse 11, we're going to see the command. Love your spiritual family. Love your brother and sister in Christ. Secondly, verses 12 to 15, reject Cain's hatred for your spiritual family. So love your spiritual family, verse 11. Reject Cain's hatred for your spiritual family. And third, lastly, verse 16 to 18, imitate Christ's love for your family. Love your spiritual family. Reject Cain's hatred of your family. Imitate Christ's love for your family. Verse 11. Just jump right in. Love your spiritual family. In verse 11, you'll notice... For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. Lest we go too quickly and just move on to what's next, what John is doing is saying, there's nothing new. I have nothing new to bring you. Remember, last, the last couple weeks, the false teachers are doing what? We have secret knowledge. And you need to come to us to really understand who Jesus is, and to really understand how to live the higher Christian life. And what John is saying is, no, nothing new here. I've got nothing new to say. What I have to say is what you've heard from the very beginning. The moment you heard the message of Christ, it's the same message. And he's been saying that throughout John, throughout John's letter, letter here. I get John's gospel and letter mixed up. His letter here is from the beginning. This is what you've heard. I'm writing because there's nothing new. What he's doing is actually comforting the reader. You're hearing all this buzz about, you don't really have it. We have the secret stuff. And he's like, no, the message hasn't changed. For us here who know Christ, the message hasn't changed in 2,000 years. It's public, available for all. To know and read about it hasn't changed. It's the same. And here he's telling us, this is the message you've heard from the beginning. Well, what's the message? That we should love one another. That we should love one another. One observation to point out here is this is not a text for us to take away saying we should love everybody. Though the Bible has many of those. The Bible commands you to love your neighbor as yourself. Everybody. The Bible commands you to love your enemy. Everybody. This command, though, is a specific command. Love one another. John is writing to believers. And the command here is Christians ought to love Christians. Christians ought to love their spiritual brothers and sisters. So, are you with me? I'm not saying this text is like, don't love other people who aren't Christians, but it's a very specific love here. What it's saying here is that when one comes to Christ, there's not just a change of view about who God is, there's also a change in how we see his people. It's not, I love God and I love Jesus, I hate his people. John's saying, no, 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 no. 
The person, the one who is their father loves them. Therefore now, because he's changed your heart, you love them. Love one another. That's the command here. Also notice there's no qualification. Love one another as long as. Love one another as long as you like them. Love one another as long as they make you feel comfortable. Love one another as long as they meet your needs. No, it's love one another. What else? Period. Love one another. Jesus has been telling us this throughout John's gospel. In John 13, verse 35, 34 and 35. By this will all men know that you are my disciples. If what? You love one another. John 15, we read over and over. Our brother Charlie read, love one another. Love one another. Love one another. Guess what we're going to do for like the next three or four weeks? Love one another. It's like John is like, this is hard. It's not easy. So I'm going to keep saying the same thing over and over. Next week, guess what we're going to find in 1 John chapter 3, verse 23? Love one another. Guess what we'll find in John, 1 John 4, verse 7 and 11 and 12 and 13? Love one another. Guess what we'll find in, in 2 John? We'll go through 2 and 3 John as well. Love one another. Love one another. It's easy to say. It's a simple concept to grasp. It's impossible in the flesh to do. Love one another. Jesus is commanding here and through John that Christians love each other. In other words, this passage tells us that not to love other Christians is inconsistent with the message of Christ. To not love brother and sister is inconsistent with who we are spiritually in Christ. This, room, this leaves no room for I love God but hate His people. Yes, the church and Christians, myself chiefly, are full of faults and sins. We wrong each other and mistreat each other. Yes, it's hard to love each other. Yet the command still stands. We are a spiritual family and we're called to love one another. That's the command. Love your spiritual family. Then what John is going to do for the rest of our time is compare and contrast. He's going to give us an example of what we shouldn't do and then an example of what we should do. So our second point after love your spiritual family is reject Cain's hatred of your family. Verse 12. We should not be like Cain. If you're here and you're like, I'm not super familiar with the Bible. I read that name Cain and I have no idea who that is. Cain shows up very early in the Bible, the fourth chapter of the Bible. Cain and Abel are two of Adam and Eve's sons. And in, in Genesis 4, they bring offerings. Abel brings of the first fruit of his livestock and offers, and the Lord accepts his sacrifice. And Cain brings an offering from the ground. And in Genesis, we don't know why, but the Lord rejects Cain's offering. We have glimmers of maybe reasons why in the book of Hebrews and here that Cain's was unrighteous and Abel offered in faith. But what is clear is that in Genesis, Cain becomes jealous and he hates his brother. 
and he murders his brother. And, and it's, it's clear what John is doing here is he just told us, love your brother. And then he's like, let me give you an example of somebody who didn't love their family member, Cain. He murdered his, his family member. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. He was of the evil one. He, he, Genesis 3 tells us there will be an offspring of woman and an offspring of the serpent. And this text is telling us that Cain, by his action, is showing that he is of the evil one. He's of the line of the serpent. He doesn't love his brother. And then he, he tells us, asks the question, well, why did he murder him? And, and to put it in kind of just a summary term, unrighteousness hates righteousness. Righteousness, even if it's not looking down upon or self-righteousness, people that live for Christ and follow Christ necessarily kind of poke in on the unrighteousness of the world. Even if you're not a jerk for Jesus, that's like, ah, I'm better than you. Even if you're a humble, Christ-loving person, people are like, no, you make me feel uncomfortable because what you're doing is different than me. And that's kind of a pattern we see throughout from Genesis 4 onward is that those who are righteous are hated by those who are unrighteous. And that's why he killed them. And look at what his conclusion is in verse 13. This pattern runs throughout Scripture. So John tells us, don't be surprised that the world hates you. The way the language literally reads is not, don't be surprised. The language is actually showing that there is something happening already that he's telling them to stop. So we literally could translate it, stop being surprised. It's, it's like the, the readers of John's letter originally are like, I can't believe people don't like us. And John's like, quit being shocked that the world hates you. They hated your Savior. They hated him. He was murdered because they hated his deeds of righteousness. He made the religious leaders of the day feel very uncomfortable when he pointed and poked out some of the, the things they were doing wrong, and they murdered him for it. And you as his followers should expect the same. The world will not be a friend to you. So don't be surprised. Don't be shocked that the world hates you. Just one side note. Let's make sure they hate us because of the Christ in us and not because we are misrepresenting him. There's a difference between we preach Christ and we are unashamed of the truth, even if it's unpopular. That's different than self-righteous, whatever other words you want to use. We don't want to be offensive. We want the message to be offensive. So here's his conclusion, his application to his first point, verse 14 and 15. He's told us, don't be like Cain. He hated righteousness. He murdered his brother. Don't mistreat brother. Now verse 14. Verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life. We know we've gone from the realm of spiritual death to the realm of spiritual life. We know we've gone from being distant, alienated from God to being near as sons and daughters of God by this. That you love your brother. You see what he's doing here? He's saying love between Christians is so supernatural, so not of the flesh, that it's an evidence that there is real spiritual life. 
He's talking here now about the source of the Christian's assurance. And he says, if you can see that you love your brothers and sisters, if you, you can see you have love towards your spiritual family, it is evidence of life. Just think about what's implied behind that. It's natural for me to love and like people that are just like me look like me, come from the same culture as me, like the same things I like. I can love those people. Why? Because they're just like me. What's implied in here is that the New Testament church is made up of people who are radically different, who don't naturally love each other. Ephesians 2, we, we once have a broken relationship this way, that Christ reconciles by faith alone. But that same Christ who reconciles this reconciles this, where you have Jew and Gentile no longer being like we hate each other, nor are they in one church over here and one church over there. They're together. It is not natural, Emmanuel Baptist Church, for us to be in this room together. It is not natural for us to love each other. As I was preparing this week, I just went through our member directory and looked and said, who do we have here in a church of 57 members. Think about the different ethnicities represented in this room. Ethiopian, Liberian, Ghanaian, Ugandan, Bolivian, Peruvian, Lebanese, Filipino, Sri Lankan, Costa Rican, Mexican, Thai, Korean, African American, and Caucasian. There is no earthly reason we should be here. Zero. There's no reason that we should not only be under the same roof, but actually love each other. Think about education level. There are PhDs, master's degrees, bachelor's degrees, high school diplomas, GEDs, and no degrees. Zero reason we should be here. Zero. We have people who are children, teens. We have young couples. We have young singles. We have middle-aged couples, middle-aged singles. I will not say old. We have seasoned veteran couples and seasoned veteran singles. There's no reason you guys should be around the same dinner table together. Love one another. If that's present, it's an evidence of spiritual life. Why? Because this is not natural. It's not normal. Christian love one for another requires a supernatural work of God in the heart of the sinner. To love people who don't look like you, act like you, think like you, smell like you, that doesn't happen apart from Christ. I was trying to find the most clear illustration, and I went back and forth as to whether to use this, but I think it will illustrate the point. I am not trying to make a political statement. But imagine, I was thinking, who are two people that if they were in the same room would not love each other? Imagine for a second, former President Trump, President Biden, come to Christ. There are two people that I would not expect to love each other. This text says those people should be under the same roof and love each other. That if they were to walk in the same door in Christ and embrace each other, I love you, brother. I love you too, brother. Any ways I can serve you, any ways I can pray for you, that is an evidence of the work of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that though that's an extreme example, that's what happens on a day-to-day -day basis with all of us? The fact that we walk in, embrace each other, try to serve one another, is an evidence that there is spiritual life present. He continues. He says that 
that not only is love an evidence, if you have love one for another, an evidence of spiritual life, but the opposite is true. That if we hate one another, how can the love of Christ abide in us? Now, it is important, like we've done throughout John's Gospel, he makes statements that you're like, oh no. It's important to realize here that the language here is the idea of a, a habitual pattern of hatred. It's not, I have a moment of, I, I just don't want to be with that person. I don't like that person. I don't want to serve. He's not talking about sin. All Christians sin. That's why in chapter 1 he's like, if you say you have none, you lie. But what he is saying is that the pattern of our lives is one where we hate fellow believers. He says, how can you say you have Jesus? It would be strange to say, I have this loving Savior and I hate your guts. It would be strange to say, I have this loving Savior. I just wish you didn't exist. I wish you never had to be around me. I wish I never had to look at you, talk at you. You are invisible to me. He says, how does the love of Christ abide in that heart that habitually thinks like that? It's very clear, though. I want to make clear. Love is not the source of life. It is the evidence of life. The Bidiana Bile said this, that love is the fruit that shows that Christ is at the root. It's the evidence. And he says if there is a pattern, unbroken, habitual, always their pattern of hatred, it shows that you have not Christ at the root. It's a sobering text. It's a text that's uncomfortable. He even goes so far as to poke a little bit harder and says if you hate, it's murder. Now I read that and I'm like, that's a big leap. Tell me that if I hate, I'm a murderer? Well, Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 5. And here's why. At the heart of murder is hatred. And what lies behind hatred is a, is a, I wish you didn't exist. I wish I didn't have to interact with you. I wish I didn't come to the same place as you and have to awkwardly walk by you and look at the wall like there's something there. At the root of that is, I don't want you around. Which is the seed that gives flower to actual murder. It's, what he's doing here is the same thing Jesus, when he says, if you lust after someone you're not married to, it's adultery. Because that's the seed that gives flower to the act. He's saying the same thing. If you have hatred in your heart towards the brother or the sister, that's the seed that will flower to real murder. And when he says, no murderer has eternal life, and you're like, well, I have hated people. He's not saying, you can't be forgiven. Look at Paul. Look at David. What he's saying is if there is the presence of continual hatred, how you don't have life. These are little bits of evidence for us to gather and examine ourselves. I want to say one thing before we move to our next, next point. I am so encouraged by what I see in this church. We have a church that loves one another imperfectly. If you're visiting, don't think when I say that, we got it down. We, if you're here, for, if we're all together for the next five years, we will not have it down. We still sin. We don't love perfectly. But I look out and I see people love one another selflessly every week. 
I see people who will invite people into their home that have nothing to do with them and genuinely love them. I see people that are like, can I give you a ride if you don't have a car? Can I help you with this? Can I rake your leaves? Can I mow your lawn? I see that all the time. Emmanuel, keep loving one another. Emmanuel, be vigilant. Because if we're not on guard, that will not stay. Because look at what I just listed, there are a lot of things from all of our backgrounds and cultures and way we've seen things and experiences where people will do things to offend us. People will wrong us. And if we don't continually keep our eyes on Christ as the source of our love for one another, that will erode quickly. So keep loving one another and stay vigilant that we might love one another. Third point. So here's what we shouldn't do. Don't be like Cain. He hated brother. We should be like Christ. Imitate Christ. Verse 16. By this we know love. It doesn't say by this we feel love. By this we know love. How we finish that sentence is vital. By this we know love. Fill in the blank. And how we fill that in is essential. Notice he doesn't say, by this we know love. I define it myself. And you can't disagree with how I define it because I define everything in my life. No. He says, by this we, we all have a universal standard of what love is. What defines love? It's not love is love or love is God. It's not I feel like doing these things and they feel good so that's love. No, it's none of that. It's not defined like the world does. It's not an act that two people do together. It, no. Love. What is it? And what does he do? He says, Jesus Christ. Love is defined by a person. It's Christ. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We could, I promise I won't do this, we, we could spend the next five hours on that phrase, and only scratch the surface. Let's just take some of the words, though. He. Who is the he? It's Christ. The one whom the Father says he delights in. The one whom the Father calls his beloved. He. The one who created the stars and formed the flowers. The one endlessly praised by angels. He laid down his life. Love motivated the creator to step into his creator, creation. Love motivated the eternal one to take on flesh. It's love that caused the creator to voluntarily lay down his life. It's love that cost the very one who formed the forests to hang on a tree as though he was a criminal. By this we know he laid down his life. And he doesn't stop there for us. It's like I read these lines and my jaw drops, and then I get to us and it just hits the floor for us. We who lie and lust, we who hate and kill, we who are bitter and callous towards each other. We who abuse power and self-justify our acts. We who tear one another down with our words 
and acts. We who are proud and look down on others. He laid down his life for us. For rebellious sinners. The Father could have given all of the riches of heaven and earth. And they would not even be a drop in a bucket to prove his love compared to him giving his son for us. He loves us. He, lo he gave his son for us. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. What is love? It's self-sacrificing for the good of others. That's love. That's what we see in Christ. And that's what we'll have defined for us in the rest of the text, that love is a self-giving for the good of others. Before we say anything else, I do feel the need to say this. John is giving us Jesus as an example, and he's far more than an example. He really did atone for our sins. It's not just a good example to follow, but it is a good example to follow. What is love? Just think of some components of Christ's love. Number one, it's, it's undeserved. It's given to sinners. It's given to unclean, defiled. It's given to guilty, lawless, rebellious people who deserve nothing but his judgment. And yet he gives love. It's undeserved. Ought we not to love one another like that? Somebody wrongs us. Ought we not to be gracious as he is gracious? It's indiscriminate. His love is not for people who look a certain way, have a certain color skin, or come from a certain nation, or have a certain economic status, or, or education level. His love is for any and all who would come. It's indiscriminate. Ought not our love in the church be reflective of that? His love is not only undeserved and indiscriminate, it's unconditioned. He doesn't say, I'll love you if you pray this many hours a day. I'll love you if you clean up your life and get a little bit better. And wow, now you're at level three, Christian, so I love you now. That's not the Lord. He loves any and all who come to him, and he lavishes them with his love. It's endless. Stephen Charnock, in his book, The Existence and Attributes of God, said this about God's love. It is a sea without banks or shores and without bottom. It's endless. You will never plumb the depths of it. Though the scriptures give us the caveat that his grace and love are not a, an excuse for sin, you will never out-sin his love. He loves sinners endlessly. His love is not like our love that's like, well, I love these people like this. Sometimes they're good and I, I don't, don't have a problem with them. Sometimes these people are terrible and I don't love. His love is consistent. It's not based on performance. It doesn't wax and wane with our performance. It's endlessly consistent. He gives us another command. Just like he said, don't be surprised. The world hates you. Now, after he gives us the example, he gives us a command. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. His, his conclusion is, if this is how Jesus loves... Isn't that how we should love? If, if Jesus loves his people in this way, ought we not to love his people in that way? And now, before we jump to the conclusion to think that 
laying down one's life for another is only confined to people who jump into burning buildings or jump in front of speeding bullets for one another. His example in verse 17 is a very practical day-to-day example. It's a daily sacrificing ourselves for the good of others. If anyone has the world's goods, meaning if, if people have resources, worldly resources, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? This text is saying, okay, let me give you an illustration of what this might look like. You have a wealthy Christian and a poor Christian. Now up until this point, it's been very easy for us to nod our heads and say, yes, we should love one another. And then he uses this word, if anyone. He goes from plural, general, to specific, a person. That's where love gets hard, when you put a face to it and you put actions and words behind it. If anyone, any specific Christian is in need and we have means and we see, and that word for see doesn't just mean a glance. It's like we're intimately acquainted with the situation and we close our heart and walk away. So what kind of love is that? Is that even love? His example here is a day-to-day selflessness giving to others. It could be seen in, in, in mowing a lawn for somebody who's sick. I have some time. I could be sitting at home watching TV, but I'm going to selflessly give to this person. It might be using talents where you have a Christian who's like, I'm trying to figure out how to budget and you know how to budget. And you're like, well, I can make some time and use my gifts and talents and and serve this way. It might be I have financial resources and I know this person's struggling to pay rent, so I'm just going to quietly help in this way. Whatever it may look like, it's a day-to-day pattern of life. And this, this can't be detached from verse 16 like, hey, good luck, go love better. It's rooted in an abiding relationship with a loving Savior who you're like, oh, I sinned, and he still loves me. I don't know of anyone more needy in the universe than a guilty sinner before a holy God, and he's given himself for me. And that frees my heart to say, I don't naturally want to love, but his love compels me to love. I don't naturally want to do this, but he's changed my heart. He's changing me. I think the answer for how we grow in this is to sit in and soak up Christ's love for us. Not that we become just kind of willy-nilly and never intentional, but it's in that abiding relationship that then drives us to intentionally love each other. Last couple things we'll say. Verse 18. Little children. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Don't just say love. I can stand up here and look you all in the eyes and say, I love you. You know what that costs me? A couple of breaths. It's easy. I can say it over and over. I can smile. I love you. But if I never actually do anything to serve you, do I love you? Words without actions are kind of like those, you know, decoration apples you see at a hotel. You try and grab that thing and bite into it, it's hollow. It's empty. There's nothing there. 
Words of love without actions are empty and hollow. They're nothing. They're cheap. What John is saying is love is shown in action. The father loved. How? How do I know that? He sent his son. The son loves. How do I know? He laid down his life. It's shown in action. Two things I want to say, just applications from this this second half, and then I promise we're done. Number one, there's always this debate nowadays about the social gospel versus just preaching the gospel. Social gospel meaning we should serve people's felt needs and and do acts of mercy. And and some people are like, that's all we need to do. That is preaching the gospel. And other people are like, well, we just preach the gospel and we don't do any of that other stuff because we don't want to be social gospel. And the scripture does not know the difference between the two. You are not loving people if we don't share the message of Christ. But it also is not loving to never care for the felt needs of those around us. Those two historically have never been at odds. You look at William Carey, when he, the missionary William Carey, and what does he do? He preaches the gospel. He calls sinners to repent. And all over the places he was a missionary, there are hospitals and schools and orphanages. Everybody nowadays wants to talk about Charles Spurgeon, and he's such a great preacher. Do you realize how many orphanages the man started? And weekly went to go read with the children and talk with them? How many ministries his church had to give housing to widows? How many, and that was a big church that had lots of resources, but there was never a divorcing of serving felt needs and preaching the gospel. And John is saying, I don't understand the dilemma. If we love each other, we're going to serve each other. If we love people, we won't say, here's Jesus. I don't care what you got going on in your life. No, they go together. They're always together, serving each other and preaching Christ. And the second thing I want to say is if you're here and you're like, man, I got some people that just rub me the wrong way, that are very hard to love, how do I love them? Three things, and we close. Number one, consider Christ's love for you. He loved you while you were yet a sinner. While you offended him. While you rebelled against him. He loved you. And if he can love you while you rebel, it's an understanding that I deserve nothing that frees us to love those who don't deserve anything. Understand his love for you if you are going to love those who rub you the wrong way. Second thing, consider Christ's love for them. The Savior bled for their sins. The ones that offend you, he bled for. If that is a brother or sister, his love is upon them. So who are we to withhold it? Thirdly, this is the one that I have meditated on this week. One day that person will stand glorified, faultless before the king. See them as you will then. That doesn't mean we don't deal with real issues and address these things and try and talk about them and seek reconciliation. But if I believe that's a brother or a sister, one day they will stand before the throne and be vindicated because of Christ. Ought I not see them with that lens now? That, that person that rubs you the wrong way, that person that you kind of want to just ignore in the hallway, will stand before Christ faultless. 
He loves them. Let that open our hearts towards them. So as we close here, love your spiritual family. It's an evidence of spiritual life. As we are kind of detectives throughout 1 John, as we gather these things, if you see, imperfectly, but if you see, I love my brother or sister, that is a cause for assurance for you that Christ has indeed been working in your life. Praise God for that. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the word who took on flesh and dwelt among us, who manifested your love in his words and most supremely at the cross. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.